All right, we're going to grab our Bibles and get into God's Word. We're going to be in Acts chapter uh, 7. Good to have you here in the room. Good to have those of you on the live stream joining us uh, this morning. And for those who are watching on demand through the week, we're grateful for you and uh, all the ways that God is bringing us together. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 7 and a little bit into uh, chapter 8. And I, I I wonder if we really understand and grasp what we have in our hands when we open the Word of God. Do we realize that when we open the Word of God, we have unsheathed the sword of the Spirit? In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says this, that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the Word of God. That's what we have open in front of us right now. And to switch the metaphor from a sword to that of a lion, Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher, said this, the Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. And so that's that's what we're doing right here, right now. We're letting the lion loose as we open the Word of God again together. And it relates to what we've been talking about over the last uh, few weeks, particularly last week. Uh, We were looking at the first part of chapter 7. Uh, Stephen, we were introduced to him a couple of messages before that, and Stephen has preached a message in front of the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and he has built a case from Scripture, and we saw this in the first part of chapter 7, he built a case from Scripture that, listen to this now, all people are predisposed to reject God's kind offer of salvation. All people are predisposed to reject God's kind offer of salvation. And so he preached that, and that faithful proclamation of the Word of God brought about a very strong reaction from the people that were listening to him. And how could it not? A sword will leave a wound, and a lion will have his prey. And the Word of God will have its effect in our lives. And it'll have its effect in our lives, whether we're a believer receiving it gladly or whether we're an unbeliever rejecting it and pushing it away. Understand the Word of God will have its way. And that's what we're going to see in today's passage as we wrap up the first main section of the book of Acts. We've done 20 messages as of today in the book of Acts. This is going to close off the first section, and it closes off this short narrative about Stephen in particular. And so I'm going to read the passage right now. This is Acts 7, 54 uh, through to chapter 8, verse 3. You follow along in whatever way you have the word open in front of you right now. Now, when they heard these things, the they is, um, is the religious leaders, the religious council. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Here's what you'll see in your notes. And by the way, your notes have all the quotes, all the lists, all the links. Everything you need is all right there and the outline. But we're going to look at this. The faithful proclamation of the Word of God uh, provokes, first of all, provokes some to react unreasonably. And you know this. If you have some people in your life that you shared the gospel with, you know that some of those people react unreasonably and strongly to the proclamation of the gospel. Now, we heard in verse 54, these religious leaders were, look at some of the words, they were enraged. They uh, ground their teeth, and they were so mad, they were grinding their teeth at him. Verse 57 says, they cried out with a loud voice, they're, they're yelling at him and at each other. And they stopped their ears, and they stopped their ears because to them, he was speaking blasphemy against the temple and against the word of God, and so they were stopping their ears so they wouldn't hear what they believed to be blasphemy. Verse 57 also says they rushed at him, and verse 58 says they cast him out of the city and they stoned him to death. Now, you might recall, if you've been following along in this study, that Gamaliel had given them some counsel back in chapter 5 when they first arrested the apostles. And, and he gave them counsel, and he said, look, I think you just need to leave this thing alone. You need to not touch these guys, because it's going to be like all those other movements that rose up. They're always just a flash in the pan. They have some life for a little while, but then they always just fade away. Just leave them alone. This will fade away as well. If it isn't just a flash in the pan, and, and it doesn't fade away, then perhaps this is really from God, and, and you would do well to not fight against God. So leave them alone. That was Gamaliel's advice to them. But obviously, by the time we get here to chapter 7 and 8, they're not taking his advice anymore, and, and they're now finding themselves fighting against God. This is a, an emotionally charged situation that spirals out of control quickly, and it has to be said that the killing of Stephen was, and you can see it in the text, it was out of rage, it was hastily executed, and it was illegal. It was, in the purest sense of things, murder by a mob. And the reason the religious leaders in fact, we know that it was illegal because the reason the religious leaders just several months before had not taken Jesus out themselves is because they knew that it was illegal for anyone to take another's life. Capital sentences needed to come down from Pontius Pilate. Israel was under Roman rule. 
These leaders didn't have the authority to sentence anyone to death. That was all true for Jesus. In fact, if you go back to John 18, 31, the religious leaders themselves in John's gospel say, we don't have the authority to put anyone to death. And this is exactly the situation with Stephen, with the murder. Now, this is obviously an emotionally charged situation. They make a decision out of that emotion. This is an extreme example for, for sure, but it allows me to insert this principle that might be helpful to some here. Strong emotions never lead to good rational decisions. Can we agree on that? Strong emotions never lead to good rational decisions. But for these leaders, it wasn't just emotion that brought about this action. That was like, that was like the catalyst. That was the last straw but they had theological presuppositions that prevented them from seeing Jesus as the Messiah. They were given over to power and politics, and we've seen that repeatedly throughout the gospel and the book of Acts. They couldn't fathom giving up their power. They had personal feelings about this. There were cultural issues that were at play. And all of that informed their decision, not just their emotions. Instead of standing back and searching the scriptures and considering the things that Stephen had said or the things the apostles had said before him or the things that Jesus had said, instead of considering all these things against the scriptures, instead of celebrating the healings and the freedom that Jesus had given people, these religious leaders dug in their heels and crafted their murderous plans. Now, now to be fair, let's be fair here. Stephen had made the case in chapter 7. From chapter 7, verse 2 through to 53, he had built this case that Israel and particularly her leaders had always throughout their history resisted the Lord, that this was nothing new, that they had always violated the covenant, that they had already, always rejected God's word, that they had all, always persecuted his preachers and prophets. And that in the most recent example that was right in front of them right now, they had murdered the promised Messiah, Jesus. Stephen pulled no punches, and that's what brought about this very strong emotional reaction that we see from these religious leaders. And let me say that still today, the gospel faithfully preached will provoke some people to react unreasonably. The gospel and its implications are provocative. They provoke people to these reactions. In fact, let's look at this for a second. Seven provocative statements of the gospel. The gospel says all of these things. We believe all of these things. But when we proclaim these things, teach these things, believe these things, tell them to other people, it can provoke some strong reactions. Seven provocative statements of the gospel. First of all, there is a God. As simple as that, there are many people who do not believe there's a God. As soon as you say there is a God, that's going to set some people off. Here's a second one. The Bible is God's inspired word. Most people around you today believe that truth is relative or that truth is particular to you. I have my truth, you have your truth, and we dare to say God has delivered to us an objective truth, the authority of His Word. That's going to provoke some people. Thirdly, 
We live in a feel-good world, and we believe that human beings are not inherently good, but are by nature sinful. There's a lot of people in the world today do not want to start with an understanding that has human beings as sinful, but want to preach that human beings are inherently good and have that as the starting point, and you can't have the gospel if that's your starting point. Fourth, this is the crown jewel of provocative statements. Jesus is the only way to God. Amen? Jesus is the only way to God. But we live in a world that does not want to hear that, even if they concede that they're okay with you loving Jesus. They do not want to go all the way down the path to believe that he's the only way there. Fifth, there is a place of eternal torment called hell for unbelievers. This will provoke many people, and in fact, many Christians are now being provoked by this statement because they don't want to believe it, and I'll admit it's uncomfortable. Sixth, seven provocative statements. Here's another one. Religion cannot save. Religion's big business. And when, when, when we preach a gospel that says, you don't need to light this candle, you don't need to say that prayer, you don't need to go on that pilgrimage, you don't need to do this list of things, when we preach a gospel of free grace by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, that tears away at the fabric of religion and the big business that it is. This is a very provocative statement. And finally, this one, Christians must seek to live by the ethical demands of the Bible and... Um, I believe that it's very true that the majority of objections to the Christian faith, no matter what someone might be saying to you if they're rejecting the gospel, the real reason, whatever they might say to you, the real reason they're rejecting the gospel is they don't want to live by the ethical demands of the gospel because they know that there's a holiness claim on those who are Christians. And so all of these, these are very provocative statements. And let's acknowledge that any one of these topics, it's not that someone needs to believe all seven of them, any one of these topics could land you in a heated discussion with an unbeliever and, in fact, sever friendships and relationships that you have. Some believers, not all, but some believers, react strongly and unreasonably and emotionally to the preaching of the gospel. All right, that's our first point tucked away. Let's look at the second one. The faithful proclamation of the Word of God also compels Christians to die well. It compels Christians to die well. Well, we know because we've already read the passage that Stephen gives his life here as a martyr for the gospel. In fact, he's the first martyr of the church, um, and, um, and he gives his life for the gospel, but you don't need, we're looking at this, we don't need to die the way Stephen died in order to die well. In fact, what we're really going for here is that we would live our lives so consistently for Jesus Christ with so much integrity that, to use a different phrase instead of die well, that we would finish strong, that we would all finish strong when we get to the end of our days and, and when the funeral's being had for us. Stephen finished strong. He died well. Look at verse 55. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's gazing into heaven. He's given this vision by God. He saw the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Verse 56, he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's invoking here, if you want to chase this down later, and I wish we had time to kind of look at it all, but Daniel chapter 7, he's invoking what's going on in the vision in Daniel 7 here in this passage. 
even using the phrase the Son of Man, there's so many theological implications to all of this. Now you think about it. He's, he's, he's saying these things. He's having these visions. He's making this, these statements. He's at peace with God. While these men are stoning him. What was going on here was gruesome. And I don't mean to offend anybody who's here right now, but normally the way stoning would happen, the way the Jews would practice this is they would take uh, the person who's been condemned outside of the city to a precipice of some kind, but not a high one, a 10 or 12 feet, and they would push that person off the precipice so that they were just laying on the ground. And then together, they would take a very large boulder and they would roll it down on top of the person, and that would kill them instantly. Then they would just throw more stones down to cover over the person. The person was not allowed to be buried because he was considered cursed. That's not the way Stephen died. Uh, the killing here was they were throwing stones at him. It was long. It was lingering. It took a while for them to be able to throw enough stones that it killed him. We know that because he's talking. He's having these visions. He's standing. Then he's kneeling. It's brutal what's happening to him, but he's dying well. In the midst of all this, he has this vision. He sees the Son of Man, very similar to what Jesus was going through on the cross in his own trial. He says in Luke twenty-two sixty-nine, 69, in the midst of his own interrogation by the same religious leaders, the same council, Jesus said this, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. No doubt the council remembered those words when Stephen was speaking, very similar ones. In fact, it was those very words that brought Jesus' interrogation to an end because the leaders said to themselves, what more do we need to hear? And they sent him off to Pontius Pilate. So here's... here's Stephen, verse 59, as they were stoning him, he calls out. Again, these rocks are flying, hitting him. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then verse 60, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Very similar words to the words of Jesus from the cross. When he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when Stephen had said this, verse 60 finishes, he fell asleep. He died. I mean, no one here is going to argue that Stephen died well. Stephen died well. Kent Hughes wrote this in his commentary on that final day. Stephen was living as Christ would. And that was all that mattered. He had lived like Christ. He had spoken like Christ. And now he would die like Christ. Stephen lived his last day of his life with remarkable Christ-likeness. And he died the same way. Will you die the same way? At your funeral when they're standing around the casket ready to lower it into the ground. Will they say of you that you lived the same way, that you lived for Christ and you died for Christ, that every fabric of who you are was Christ? A lot of things are said at funerals. I've presided over many funerals. I've been to many more. 
And I've heard a lot of things said at funerals that are lovely things to say about a person, but do not at all extend into eternity. Things we say to make ourselves feel good. Friend of mine, Daryl Dash, many of you know him. He's authored a couple of books. He's spoken up here, pastors a church in Toronto, and his wife gave him a t-shirt, and he uh, posted it this week on, um, on his social media. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Count Zindendorf said that. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That should be the goal of every person that we would die and be forgotten because we had preached Christ, we had proclaimed Christ, we had lived Christ so fully in our lives that that's all anyone ever remembered. Let that be true of every person in this room, that at our death, we are forgotten. And Christ is exalted. What's so compelling about Stephen here is that he gave so little thought to his own well-being. What mattered to him was the gospel. What, what mattered to him was people hearing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and how they could have salvation freely through Christ. What mattered was the mission being fulfilled and in this moment, as he's speaking to the council, at the very least, he thinks he's going to be thrown in prison and lose his freedom. He knows that that was at risk. No one else had yet been martyred for the sake of the gospel, but others had been arrested and even beaten. Maybe he read the room. Maybe by the look of the faces on the religious leaders, he knew that his life was now on the line. But I dare say that none of us can fathom making such a sacrifice. I have such a hard time imagining what I would do if I were in Stephen's shoes. I don't know if I could be as faith-filled as he was. He gave so little thought to his own well-being. And, and unlike Stephen, we give so much thought, a disproportionate amount of thought is, is given to our well-being. In fact, I'll take the risk to say that in the last seven days, pretty much everyone in this room spent that entire week looking after their own well-being. We think a lot about it. Our well-being may in fact be our primary goal. Because when faced with asking people for greater in engagement in the life of the church and in the mission that we have been given together, here's what we hear. Work is crazy right now. So many family demands. My physical health isn't the greatest. I'm not in the best place mentally. And so we don't give. We don't attend. We don't serve. I'm taking care of myself right now. And I'm not saying that there aren't times when we should step back and take care of our own well-being. That for sure must happen. God built Sabbath into the plan. One in seven, you should shut down and make sure you're taking care of your well-being. 
But the problem comes when the majority of our time is spent on our well-being. If that's all you have, it's that all, if that's all you pursue, all you ever say is about your own well-being, there's a problem. Ask yourself, is my personal well-being taking precedent over the millions who are perishing without Christ? I saw a tweet uh, this week, too late to put it up on the screen. And the gentleman said this, his name is uh, Tim Bates. He said this, go to jail for your faith? Some of you won't even go to church for your faith. Die for your faith? Some of you won't even go to church for your faith. It's very simple. You die well when your life, right down to your final moments, is spent on finding ways to advance the mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you right now, that's the only way for a Christian to die well. You spend your life looking for ways to proclaim the gospel and to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. All right, see this next. The faithful proclamation of the word of God shocks many as it's working. It's shocking. The gospel is shocking. Now, I feel like the message has been pretty heavy up to this point. I'm just going to just press the release valve for a second here because I know it's been heavy. There are times when you're watching a movie and, and you notice a new character comes up on the screen and you ask the question, why are they introducing this character now? What role is he or she going to play later in the story? Now, most movies that we would watch, it's pretty obvious which characters are simply extras or minor characters and which ones are, are destined to play a larger role in advancing the plot of the story. Well, as we're reading here, Luke introduces this young man named Saul. He introduces him by name, and, and our suspicions are right when we read that and we go, well, he's obviously going to play some important role in the future um, story as it unfolds here. At least uh, from a human standpoint, we know that Saul is going to become a major player in the story. The Acts uh, of the Apostles, as it's normally called, we said at the start of the series, it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit and uh, God working through people, but from a human standpoint, Saul is going to become a major character. There's three references to him here in the passage we read. Verse 58 says that the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so he's standing there. He's not throwing any stones. Uh, he's just guarding everyone's cloaks. They wanted to get those off. Why? Why'd they want to take their cloaks off? So they could throw the stones better, right? They needed some range of motion in their arms. So he's guarding all their clothes while this is going on. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 8 says, uh, Saul approved of his execution. Wasn't throwing stones, but he certainly approved of it. And verse 3, um, but Saul, this is after Stephen's died now and the persecution takes root, but Saul was ravaging the church. Now from those three statements, first of all, you can just tell Saul's not a good guy. 
I mean, he's not on the good side of this story at all. And to get a small sense of how zealous Saul was for his work, the word ravaging, that Saul was ravaging the church, the word ravaging in the original language um, is the word that we would use for wild, what wild animals do to their prey. Now, you watch Discovery or Nat Geo or one of these other you know, networks, and you see these, these, um, these, these videos of, of animals that are catching their prey. You know, you get that picture. We've talked about lions already. You get the picture of that lion, okay? They, they caught the gazelle, and then they're, just let me know when I go too far. So, they, they, you know, he, the lion's ripping, ripping the flesh off the gazelle, right? And, and the blood is everywhere, and sometimes the gazelle isn't even dead yet, and ripping it, and the innards are coming out. Have I gone too far yet? And the lion's got blood like all over his face, like his entire face is covered with blood. Have I gone too far yet? Should I keep going? That's the word. The lion ravaging his prey, tearing it to shreds, ripping the flesh from the body. That's what Paul was doing to the church. He's not a good guy. But that's not the end of Saul's story as we know. In fact, as Stephen prayed... While these stones are flying at him and hitting him, he prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And, and, and you know from the way the rest of the story plays out, he's offering that prayer, maybe not knowingly just for Saul, but he's offering that prayer for Saul. Lord, don't hold this, this sin against Paul, against Saul as he stands there approving of my execution. Because, of course, we know that Saul would become converted, become a Christian, become an apostle. He would later describe himself, in fact, as he told his story repeatedly. Verse, 22, uh, verse 4 of chapter 22 of Acts, he said, I, was, I persecuted this way to the death. The way was what they called the church. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Yes, I was the guy. He'd stand in front of people just like this, and he'd tell his story. I was the guy. I'm the guy who did that. Galatians 1.13, he writes a letter to the Galatian church. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And by his own mouth, he, con he confirmed that he was there when Stephen was murdered and was part of it. Chapter 22, verse 20, he said, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed. I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. It's also telling what happened after he was converted. It was so shocking to everyone to hear that Saul was converted. This is in Acts chapter 9. It was so shocking that initially the church felt fear that he was saying that he had become a Christian. Well, they were afraid, of course, that he was going to come into the church, infiltrate it, find out who more people were, and persecute them even further. But when they finally discovered that Paul was indeed a believer, indeed saved, he had been such the leader over all of the persecution that a great peace fell over the entire church. Again, this is all in Acts 9. The chief persecutor was now saved and the persecution died down. 
And that, all of that points to the proclamation, the power of the proclamation of the gospel, because it saves murderers and haters. Paul again wrote of himself to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, Christ Jesus came in the world, came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. I'm the foremost. I'm the chief of sinners. And if God can save the chief of sinners, he can save anyone. If you're watching on the live stream or you're here in the room and you're not yet a follower of Christ and maybe you're saying, you know what, you don't know my sin and you don't know where I've come from and you don't know how hard my life has been and how much I've offended a holy God. If God can save Paul, he can save you. There's not a single person within the hearing of my voice right now that God cannot save. Not a single person on this planet that God cannot save. Where you start out and how far you have to go to get to God is of concern only to God himself, not to you. Because God's the only one who can bridge the gap. You come to him by faith and you receive salvation by grace. It's a gift from God. We need only come by faith, repenting of our sin. Your sins are not so great that the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse them. We need to let the shocking work of forgiveness and grace, it's shocking in every one of our lives, by the way. We need to let the shocking work of forgiveness and grace be applied in all of our lives. All right, we're getting close to the end here. Here's the fourth one. The faithful proclamation of the word of God also moves the church to mission. I've been in ministry long enough to know this is true. Every local church and every denomination has to deal with ongoing theological and missional drift. Every church drifts off course. Any church that wants to survive and remain faithful to God will have to make regular course corrections to remain on the right track. And in the wake of Stephen's death, a lot had been happening in the church of Jerusalem. And at first glance, when you look at it, it's all terrible. It's all bad news. It's all difficult to hear. In verse 2 of chapter 8, devout men buried Stephen at great risk to themselves because he shouldn't have been buried. They made great lamentation over him. The church is grieving. Verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church. We already saw that. He's entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison simply because they had faith in Christ. This meant, back to verse 1, that they were all scattered. The believers were like, the heat is on in Jerusalem. We got to get out of here. And so they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. We can only speculate why the apostles didn't uh, also leave. Uh, perhaps the church still needed to be led from Jerusalem. There were still opportunities to preach in and around the temple. They, of course, understood the risk. They knew uh, that their lives were of no account to themselves and only given to the gospel. So they stay behind. But it's evident that God needed to push the church out of the city. And this was his means of doing so. Now you look ahead to chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 4, where we see that we didn't read this verse. This will be in the next message, where we see that those who were scattered, so they're scattered because of the persecution, but those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
So now the gospel spreading out from Jerusalem as a result of this persecution. We know that by the time we get here to chapter 8, many months, if not a couple of years, have passed, and the church in Jerusalem has actually flourished during this entire time. But it was not exactly fulfilling its mission that had been given to it in chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, those two places sound familiar, and the end of the earth. They had been staying all these months in Jerusalem, building the church there. And yes, a mega church had been birthed in that one city. But what about all the other cities of the world? What about all the villages and towns between those cities? The only way for the gospel to go everywhere as God intended was to push the church out of the nest and to force it to fly. And so there was a sort of missional drift that had happened to the church in Jerusalem. They were just there building that one thing, but not thinking to the rest of the Great Commission as it had been given to them. And this kind of missional drift is so common today, it's so easy to get off course. We've thought a lot about this, and I surveyed our staff team and, and said this week, what are some ways that churches just drift off the path missionally? And here's some things that we came up with. Missional distractions, uh, having a building. Having a building is a wonderful thing, but it's just a building. It's, it's just a facility in which we do ministry. For 16 years prior to this building, we did it in a bunch of other buildings all around the city. We were still carrying on the mission. It's just a building. Many churches get so attached to their buildings that their buildings actually become idols and the building becomes more important than the mission. I don't even call this place the church. I don't say, hey, we're meeting at the church. I always use the address. It's 7 George Street. Just a building. That's all it is. We love it. We take care of it. We're grateful for it. It facilitates our ministry. We're not going to idolize it. Building, traditions and history. I love traditions and I love history. But we can get locked into those things and lose the mission. Or people who are satisfied with the status quo. Well, now that we're in the buildings, they're so comfortable here. I don't want anything to ever change. Don't change anything. Church is full of people who don't want anything to change. Or here's another thing that could be a missional distraction. Programs, 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 where success is measured by how many things you put on the calendar. And keeping people busy is not the mission. Or political engagement in place of gospel proclamation. That's a huge distraction to the mission. Or some churches are just too set financially. Everything's paid off. We have lots of money in the bank. Look how comfortable we are. We're not going to spend any money because we want all that money in the bank. You lose the mission because you're too comfortable. Or the opposite is also true. You have no debt. You have no money. You can't do mission because you're paying off debt. So both can be a distraction. Overemphasis on justice issues or institutionalization, too much bureaucracy, too complicated of an org structure. Or some churches are off mission because they're so focused on secondary and tertiary doctrinal issues rather than the primary ones that are focused on the gospel. Some churches are off mission because they're so prideful with unhealthy comparisons to other churches always saying, hey, we're better than, we're better than. Some churches are off mission because they're trying so hard to be cool, non-offensive, culturally relevant, consumeristic. Some churches have 
talk so much about the guest experience that the whole thing becomes about the guest and not about the Lord. And I'm glad that God has moved our church over the years and sometimes God has moved our church against our will and pushed us to places we didn't want to go in order to give us greater missional opportunities. It's often painful, maybe always painful when he does that. But I just remind myself, not nearly as painful as what the church in Jerusalem was going through in Acts 7 and 8. So let's just keep proclaiming the word. That's the bottom line there. Finally, this one. The faithful proclamation of the word of God reveals God's power and glory. And we see this throughout. God's at work here. The persecution had been smoldering since Acts chapter 4 and the first time the apostles were brought in. But it sparks into a full-fledged flame with Stephen's death and becomes a full-out inferno in the days that followed. And what's evident throughout the passage is the not-so-subtle work of the Holy Spirit who's orchestrating everything that's happening. For example, Stephen in verse 55, he's full of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that. He's receiving this vision of heaven and the glory of God, Jesus. It's so evident that God was with him in his passing and and allowing him to simply fall asleep in the midst of a horrific violence being waged against him. He simply fell asleep. The faithful proclamation of the Word of God always yields a powerful manifestation of the work of God. I'll say that again. The faithful proclamation of the Word of God always yields a powerful manifestation of the Word of God. Just preach the Bible. Preach the gospel. And God will work in powerful ways. In fact, God said that exact thing to the prophet Isaiah and had him write it down for us. This is Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's exactly what's happening here today. God's word will hit the mark in every single person who's in the room and watching on the cameras. Everyone. I said it off the top. It doesn't matter if you're rebellious against this word and don't want to believe and accept it, or if you're fully receiving of it, God's will is being done in this place because His word has been proclaimed. So when you read the word, when you study the word, when you teach it to your children, when you listen to it preached, when you gather in your small groups to discuss the implications and applications of it, when you meditate on it and memorize it and mull it over and quote it back, it reveals God's power. It reveals His glory in your life and in the lives of all you touch. So unsheathe the sword and let the lion loose. Let me pray for us. Father, again, Uh, We uh, throw ourselves on your mercy and your kindness. Having heard your word today, I pray that you would do a powerful work of transforming us more fully into the person of Christ, that we would on our last day be known for one thing only, that we were Christ's, and that we proclaimed his gospel to all who would hear 
And God, as we move now into a time having heard your word and having worshiped you into a time of remembrance around the Lord's table, I pray that you would bless and sanctify these moments. I pray, God, that your very presence would be with us. And I pray this in the name of the Savior. Amen.